We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 today, so why don't you grab a Bible, if you brought one, or one of the ones in the pews in front of you, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read from verses 8 to 12. And before we read God's word together, let's pray together. Our gracious God, you have blessed us, as we were thinking about earlier in our service, with every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those blessings is that you have revealed yourself to us wonderfully, in a general way, in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God day after day. They pour forth speech. Thank you that there is no place in this world where you are not known through that creation of yours. But we thank you for the blessing of this special revelation of your word given to us as your spirit carried men and spoke through them to give us the word that we have before us today to read it together, study it together, uh, and seek to apply it to our lives together. Uh, God who gives us strength, you are God who are our shield. Uh, Teach us today, we pray to trust in you and find our strength in you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, 1 Peter chapter 3, let's read from verse 8. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. This is God's word. Well, C.S. Lewis is a writer well known to, I would dare say, all of us, if not most of us. And he's famous for weaving into particularly his, his narrative books, like the Chronicles of Narnia, Christian themes. And in Prince Caspian, the second in the Narnia series, uh, we see something of this take place. At the start of that book, we meet the four children. They're different from all the other children round about them. They aren't bothered by children's games anymore, not after their experience of Narnia. They have met the mighty Aslan. And that changed their perspective on their own time and their own setting completely. They are now, as a result of that, living like they belong somewhere else. And I think it's the same for those of us who follow Jesus Christ as well. Meeting him has changed our lives considerably. The things that we long for, the things that we value, the things that we live for in this life, have have changed 
We are living also like we belong somewhere else. We are, in the language of Peter, aliens and strangers in this world. Now, the differences that people see in us often change the way people relate to us. Sometimes the change in us or the distinctiveness of us as Christians can lead to inquisitiveness. People ask us to give reasons for the differences that they see in us. That then gives us the opportunity to share our faith. And that's what uh, Paul is going to be looking at uh, in a few weeks' time after Christmas. But sometimes, sometimes this distinctiveness in our Christian lives leads to something more painful. Uh, It leads to mockery or ridicule or persecution. And I don't think Peter's necessarily talking about the kind of persecution where blood is being spilled on the streets. I don't think people are necessarily paying the ultimate price for believing in Jesus by losing their lives. But still, they're experiencing a low to kind of mid-level persecution where where it's hard for them. Peter in chapter 1 and verse 6 says that the Christians that he's writing to have had to suffer many trials. In chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, they've been on the receiving end of the ignorant talk of foolish men. In chapter 3 and verse 16, we read that they are being spoken of maliciously by unbelievers around them and they're being slandered. And chapter 4 and verse 4 shows that these folks have had abuse heaped on them. So, So largely what we're looking at here is this kind of verbal shunning or verbal abuse. People are lying about people people who are Christians or attacking them verbally and the question in this is how does God want his followers to respond how does he expect us as Christians to respond when we as followers of Jesus are abused or slandered or spoken ill of on account of the fact simply that we love Jesus and follow him Well, there are, to to begin with, two things we must not do. And both, again, I think, are woven in by C.S. Lewis at the start of Prince Caspian. Because the scene opens up with with Susan retreating into herself in self-pity. She's different, but she doesn't want to really communicate with the people who are different around her. People who are commenting on the fact that she's different. So she avoids contact with people around her. That's one of the errors. Avoidance. Not good. Secondly, violence. That's not good either. We see Peter Pevensey, Susan's elder brother. He, on the other hand, he's thrown down his school bag and he's put up his fists. He's ready to trade jabs for their jibes. But that's not right either. These are the things that we must avoid if we want to, as this passage tells us, love life and see good days. And especially if we want to see people rescued from their sin, even our mockers. The church's response to the world's hostility, then, is not retreat, nor retaliation, but mission. We're to do good for a certain purpose. And according to 2 Peter, there are two things, according to Peter, sorry, there are two things that will help us as we seek to glorify God by making disciples of all nations, 
even in the face of opposition. And we've got them in this chapter, in this passage that we're looking at. So first of all, in verse verse 8, the first thing that Peter calls us to do is to bless each other. So in verse 8, Peter is making a very strong appeal. In the face of persecution, Peter is effectively saying that we need to make sure that our local church family is the most loving and the most supportive community for us in the whole world. Ultimately, that's what he's saying. And you can understand why he makes this appeal. Outside pressures always challenge internal relationships, don't they? I mean, have you ever had a difficult day at work? And maybe you've gone home and you've either, you've either been silent or you've taken your frustration out on a member of your family. Yeah, external pressures can affect internal relationships. And it's the same in our church family. The dangers Christians face in times of trial from the outside is that cracks can sometimes appear on the inside. And in times of testing, the relationships that we need the most need to be worked on and cultivated and preserved or mended, if already broken. That's why we need one another's loving support. So Peter, in verse 8, calls us to be a certain kind of people together and to bless each other in five particular ways. First of all, live in harmony with one another. So if there's tension and hostility out there, make sure there's togetherness in here. We are united through faith in Christ and called collectively as a local church body to have the mind of Christ. Actually, that's what the Greek word points to. Unity of mind. We're to be united in our thinking, united in what we believe, together in our understanding of what God has done for us and how the gospel transforms our relationships with each other and to help us remember, actually, how the gospel transforms our relationships with those outside of the church. When we cultivate this kind of harmony, this kind of single-mindedness, it bolsters us as a church. It strengthens us in a church, as a church. And that's vital in times of trial and hardship. The second thing he encourages us to be is sympathetic. If there's one thing that's worse than suffering, it's suffering on your own. And that's why Peter calls us effectively here to suffer alongside one another. And we recognize that's crucial as well. To have the kind of brother or sister who not only listens to us in our pain, but weeps with us through it. That's, that's the depth of feeling that we ought to have for one another within the church. And that's what love is, isn't it? Are we sympathetic in that sense towards each other? Peter goes on, the third thing he says, we are to love as brothers. So we're not to be satisfied to be mere strangers in the church. We're not fellow members of a club. We're siblings in Christ. We're family called to, as Peter will say in the next chapter, to love one another deeply from the heart. And how important is that? Particularly when we find our mockers to be our, our husband or our wife, our brother or a sister, our parent or a child. I wonder if you were asked to describe Charlotte Chapel in one word, would that word be love? Love is what should define Charlotte Chapel 
as a body of believers together, a family of faith. And we need this if we are to carry on as Christians and live effectively as Christians together and in our world. The fourth thing Peter calls us to is compassion. He wants us to be compassionate, to be the kind of people who feel deeply for one another. So if you experience or or know of someone who's going through a difficult time, a hardship of some kind, particularly in the face of persecution, if you feel someone else's pain in the pit of your stomach, if you ache for them and for their situation, then it will demonstrate that you have a love and a compassion for them. And it will prompt you to respond in ways that are appropriate. Not just saying, oh, that's a pity or that's a shame. But you will pray for them. You will move towards them in love. You will try and uh, exercise your love in deeds of kindness. You'll make sure that, that you don't just feel that compassion, but they know that you're compassionate. And the fifth thing is, he calls us to be humble. It is selfishness that moves away from a person when they are in need. And at times we can be tempted to avoid conversation with someone who is suffering because we wonder how taxing it might be on us, whether on our time or whatever. But Peter says that we need to be a humble people. A people who are willing to lay down our, and lay aside our own wants and our own preferences if it might serve someone else to strengthen them and encourage them to keep on going in the faith and respond rightly in the face of persecution and hard times. Now, one thing must be made clear. I don't think that Peter is calling for us as a church to be some kind of pity party. All this love and sympathy is not merely an end in itself. It's vital, but it's not an end in itself. Peter's hope is, not, is for local churches to function not as retreat centers. No, he wants us to operate, I think, far more like a medic's tent on a battlefield. Now, I hope I'm not sounding insensitive in saying that. I know many of us find it hard coping with the animosity that we experience or the low-level shunning of family members, of friends, of colleagues at work, of people who distance themselves from us simply because we love Jesus and want to follow him. I find it hard. I find it hard coping with the fact that ever since I became a Christian, I get left out of things that the rest of my family get invited to. But I'm not among my brothers and sisters here today in order to just get sympathy and just get compassion, in order that as an end in itself I might feel that and lick my wounds, as it were. No, I'm I'm here so that God might use you in my life to bandage up my wounds and get me back out there so that by living out gospel deeds and sharing gospel words, I might be strengthened and my my family members might, might just see these things, see my response. And as a result, come to glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what I want brothers and sisters in this church family to do for me. That's what I want to do for you. That's what we should want to do for one another. So the end of these five things is not just for us to feel these things and experience these things together. They are to strengthen us for our mission together. And I'm encouraged to see this kind of work going on in the church 
uh, the 131 group that Paul mentioned a couple of weeks ago. I love that. I love hearing about things like that. The little sound bites of sympathy that we get to hear. The, the promises of prayers that are, that are crisscrossing in this church on a Sunday and by phone calls and letters and cards and everything uh, during the week. Uh, it, it thrills me. We need to keep it up. Maybe we need to take it up a level. Now, we do not automatically arrive at this level of community, do you understand? This takes commitment. This will take regular commitment and a a constant work in our lives together. Because I find in my own times of weakness, and perhaps you do too, that it's far too easy for us to be satisfied with superficial relationships. Or worse, happy in our isolation. But that's not God's will for his church. That's not God's will for his children as they gather together in local communities. Well, we might well make our response to the gospel as individuals, but we must always recognize that we cannot follow Christ as individuals. It's a community endeavor. Lone Ranger Christians are ultimately selfish Christians. And can I say to those of you who just attend on Sundays, you may well attend on a Sunday, but if you live independently of the local church community every day, every other day, I'm concerned that you will not receive the kind of support that Peter says you need. And I'm sad that others will not receive the kind of loving support that Peter says we need from you. So we should make it our joy and make it our aim, our ambition to be so connected in the life of this church through membership and through connecting in a small group in some sense. It may be in a fellowship group, it may be in time out or something like that. And quite simply, you can come along to any one of our membership classes. You can get plugged in. You can ask about these from the church office. We need to remember and be encouraged to enjoy the meaningfulness of our membership together because that's how we'll be able to strengthen and encourage one another in the face of the hardship and the trial that we experience it's vital it's vital i think our church family and the small groups that we're a part of should be like dinner with good friends i love dinner with good friends Uh, the chat is great you laugh together You're open with each other. You share what's really going on in your hearts. There's very little that's guarded. And even if someone is a little bit guarded, well, you know about it. Someone notices because they know you well. So our fellowship should be like that. Deep love shared between friends at dinner. So you can understand why in the face of trial, for our strengthening and our encouragement, for our bolstering, Peter is keen for the church to be what God has called the church to be. The most loving and supportive and encouraging community in the entire world. That's what he's called us to be. Quite a challenge, isn't it? So that's what he says in the first thing. Bless one another. Now the second thing in the passage from verses 9 to 12 Bless your mockers. Bless your mockers. (laughs) Now, I don't know what you were taught as you were growing up on the subject of confrontation. 
But on the subject of confrontation, I received very clear instruction from my older brothers. I still remember one of them placing a firm hand on my shoulder with a very serious look in his eye, saying, if someone hits you, hit them harder. Okay? I lived in West Lothian, okay? Uh, it was payback culture, okay? Payback. It's all about payback in West Lothian. Uh, and actually, I'm surprised to see it's all about payback in, term, in Peter's eyes as well. I wonder if you noticed that. Look at verse 9. Imagine Peter now with his hand on your shoulder, serious look in his eye, saying to you, if someone does something evil against you or insults you because you love Jesus, pay them back. You see, that's what he said. Did you see it? But don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. No, what kind of payback is this? Blessing. Do good. How counterintuitive is that? I mean, I wonder what my old enemies in West Lothian would think about that. I've been punched a couple of times and I'd have loved to have seen their faces if I just gave them a man hug and a World Cup ticket in response, you know. <laughs> it is counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> Why would God want us to bless people that are hurting us? Why would God, that's a question, why would God want to bless people who are hurting his children? He is our father, let's recall. I mean, that's supernatural sentiment right there. And again, I feel like that's, that's amazing, actually. My little girl is five years old. She's in primary one. She told me a few weeks ago that a boy was nasty hurt to her in the playground. And I know what I ought to say in that situation. But I have to admit, every ounce of my being wants to say, what was his name and where does he live? <laughs> now, if that's how I feel when my daughter's mistreated, I mean, is that how God feels? Is God unimpressed when, his people, when people insult his children and inflict hardship and persecution on them? beating them, slandering them, causing hurt and pain. Well, his anger is roused at the sin of persecution, make no doubt. Make, make no, yeah, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> In fact, he takes the opposition of his people personally. God's heart is so bound up with our suffering that actually he interprets any move against us as, against, as a move against him. Do you remember Jesus was appearing to Saul on Damascus Road? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? Me. So why does he want us to bless those who do evil against us? Well, I think there are two reasons in this section. One, so that we might be blessed. So that we may obtain the, the, the best blessing that we are due to receive. Because to bless in reply to cursing is to be like Jesus. And that's what Peter highlights, that we are called to be. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called. This is the kind of life you're called to when you signed up, when you repented of your sins and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, wonderfully receiving all the spiritual privileges of the heavenly inheritance, enjoying all the privileges of rights and privileges of sonship, of being adopted into his family. To suffer for him is also what we were called to. Track the life of Jesus Christ and you'll see he was not angry because of the insults and derision of those who volleyed them at him. 
As 1 Peter 2.23 says, look with me, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So responding in this way is the way that we exercise Christ-likeness. This is what we're called to. And responding in this way is precisely how we love life and see good days. What do you think it takes to love life? How would you define what a good day is? I dare say many of us who are Christians would say, well, a good day is when we've had a happy day, when there hasn't been this kind of persecution, when we haven't experienced any kind of abuse on account of the fact that we love Jesus But Peter is highlighting here that actually it's still a good day when we count it a privilege privilege to suffer on account of the Lord's name. And how countercultural that is as well. A good day, according to Hannah Montana, is that the good day is all about having the money you want to buy all the things you want. What a lie that has been preached to our teenagers. Kanye West will tell his listeners that the good days are when the bottles and the girls keep on coming. What a joke. This, no, this is a life of blessing. Responding rightly to persecution when it comes, being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, is a good day. It's hard. Peter doesn't erase that bit of it. It's hard. He describes these trials as painful. But it's a life of blessing because it's a life that pleases God when we respond rightly to trials. Verse 12 tells us that our life is lived before God's eyes. And he tells us plainly that obedience to him in daily life is the path to experiencing God's blessing. That's what we were called to. Look over to 1 Peter chapter 1. The second part of verse 2 tells us that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What for? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. So it's obedience to God in daily life. That's the path to experiencing God's blessing, even if it takes us through trial. Even if it takes us through fire. Even if it takes us through rushing waters, even if it's hard. By implication, disobedience then will lead to God's discipline. I think that's what Psalm 34 verse 16 is highlighting for us. It was read earlier. It's written there in chapter uh, verse 12, the second half of it. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. A capitulating church, in other words, will find the Lord against it in discipline. But we respond rightly and receive God's blessing when we bless others on account of their cursing in response to it. The love of life and the experience of good days then is not found in the absence of suffering. It's found in obedience to God who calls us to be like Jesus. And what's more, responding in this way is one of the things that gives us confidence, even assurance in our salvation. 
it gives us a confidence that the Holy Spirit really is at work in us to change us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Because this teaching is so counterintuitive, we should have this confidence, which is a wonderful blessing in itself. The ability to not merely clench our teeth and refrain from retaliation when we're reviled or mocked, but instead to pray sincerely for the well-being of our mockers, I think is a wonderful testimony of God's work in our lives. And an encouraging sign of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is it not? I would never have responded in this way were it not for the love of God, the love that God has shown me in Christ Jesus. Never. My knuckles would be red. We would fight back. We would curse back. In chapter 1 and verse 7, again we find these trials that Peter's talking about have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved, what's the word? Genuine. Genuine. Confidence, brothers and sisters. If you can bless, you can pay back evil and reviling with blessing. Praise God that he is at work in your life supernatural so brothers and sisters honour God in your response to persecution as Peter encourages us there again from Psalm 34 seek peace pursue it blessed are the peacemakers but God also wants to bless those who do evil against us because it's not just for our benefit but for theirs this is implied in the context when we bless our accusers in return for their reviling, we do so in the hope that they might receive the ultimate blessing of knowing Jesus Christ for themselves and the forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. God wants us to repay evil with good and insult with blessing because by being gracious, by being loving, we show a true reflection of our God and our Father who is gracious and who is loving. If we retaliate and respond in unkindness or respond sinfully, they could be turned away. They may indeed have good cause to think, they are no different from me, these Christians. Ha! Hypocrites. Their gospel does not change them the way they say it does. But if we bless people in return for their accusations or for their slander or for their evil, then we might be the very thing that God uses to make our abusers and accusers sit up and take notice of the power of God's love in the gospel. I have once been a person who reviled people who trusted in Jesus Christ. I didn't become a Christian until I was 19. I spent four months in 1999 trying to figure out whether or not Christianity was true. And I, after a four-month period of investigating it, I decided it wasn't for me. I thought it was ridiculous. I went home and I rolled a joint on the Bible that these people had given to me. I reviled them in that sense. I reviled them in my thoughts. I reviled them in the conversations I was having with my flatmates, none of whom were Christians at the time. 
but how amazing it was to see the response. How amazing it was even when I thought that their beliefs were ridiculous. How amazing it was to see the love and the grace that they continued to show me. They didn't give up on me. They met more regularly to pray. They demonstrated their love whenever we met. It was a powerful, powerful testimony. And as one who's been in that situation, can I encourage you, never ever underestimate the power of your gracious words and your acts of kindness in accompanying your gospel words in, in God's hands. Because sinners can be brought to repentance. One thing is clear, we cannot stand by and do nothing. Even to withhold blessing is sinful. In fact, it's the epitome of hate to withhold something so good from people that are so needy. Now, this is hard teaching. I acknowledge that. It's hard enough, I think, blessing those we love in their weaker moments when they revile us. But to bless our enemies, well, here's what motivates us to bless others in the face of such hostility and accusation. We realize that we were once God's enemies. We lived in unbelief. We defied his words. We rebelled against him. We were hostile towards him, at enmity with him, like we were warring. There wasn't just this happy distance between us and God. We were at enmity with each other. Yet he did not treat us as our sins deserve. No, he moved towards us in love. It was that love that compelled him to send his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to bless us with the greatest good that he could possibly pour out on us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That sounds like a pretty good blessing to me. He moved towards us in love in a way that we didn't deserve to repay our hostility with grace and love that we might come to him and inherit the greatest blessing, knowing God and being with him forever in eternity. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to to dignify the things that we're talking about today and dignify the questions that may be raised in your minds because of the things that we're talking about today. This is too good to let go of. Some of you might think it's too good to be true. Well, I would encourage you to recognize that it is, and it is probably, well, in fact, it is the greatest endeavor of your life to find out whether or not it is true. And we would love to talk to you about these things. But you can respond in kind today even though you presently at enmity with God, defying his word as he encourages all in the world to obey the gospel and come to him through faith in Jesus. You can turn from your sin. You can confess your defiance and your rebellion. You can say sorry for the ways in which you've, you've sinned against his people who are made in his image or sinned against him. And you can confess that sin and come freely, not not expecting to receive a rollicking in return or a frowning face 
but open arms and an embrace of a loving father. Would you come to him today in faith, believe in him? He's real. This is no fable. But if we grasp these things together, brothers and sisters, and think about how the Lord God has treated us, then we have every reason to treat our accusers in the way that he has treated us. If God responds to our sins and insults against him in terms of blessing through the cross, then we, this is to what we are called, should respond with blessing so that those who revile might even come to know him and come to the cross for themselves. This should be our prayer. Strengthen one another. Bless one another. Make this the most loving, supportive community in the entire world. And bless our mockers. That's our mission. Let's pray.